You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. This week, Genesis 34, jumping back in after four weeks not preaching, I, I had a look um, a couple weeks ago at this chapter and I'm going, wow, what? I really didn't, didn't plan these very well. Um, this is because this is a rough chapter. I, I just have to say that up front. This is not an easy thing, not an easy story to, to work through. Um, and if we weren't so committed to all of the Bible being God's word, all of the Bible being useful, all of it being there for a reason, then we probably just skip over this chapter. But I, I think it, there is benefit, we believe, in all of the Bible. And so we're going we're gonna to go through it today. We're going to unpack it. Um, I will say that this, because of the um, topic, uh, uh, of the, this is a, a sensitive one. So if you're here um, or if you're listening to this, um, I just want to say up front that this um, the story and what we're talking about, it does address um, violence, particularly sexual violence against women. And so I do want to just let you know that up front, that we will be talking about that this morning. I want to proceed with care and grace as much as my own limitations will allow so that we... My, and my aim in this is that always that we come away from reading and understanding these stories with a greater love and a greater longing for Jesus, our, our Savior, who comes to make all things new, who comes to make everything sad untrue. Um, and there's a lot of sadness and sorrow in this chapter that we're going to look at today. Jesus is the one who came to fully deal with the injustice and sin in the world. He came to destroy it without destroying us. That's what the cross is, is all about. So why don't I pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into the story for today. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can be here together in person and, enjoy, and, and virtually as well, opening your word and listening to what you have to say to us. We believe that this passage is here for a reason. We believe that your spirit has something to say to us this morning. So would you help us to hear you and believe you and, uh, and worship you as we hear these things this morning? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, to fully get and understand and appreciate the story, we do need to back up and give a little bit of the context of where we've been so far. Um, it was really good to listen to, to Josh and Tyson and Carl um, preaching through the Genesis narrative, the story of Jacob. Um, so if you've kept up and you've been tracking with us, you know that Jacob had spent 20 years up outside of the promised land in a place called Paddan Aram with his uncle Laban working. He got married. He had not just one, but two wives and then and servants and then at least 12 kids. Um, we find out from this chapter today that he also has at least one daughter. He's got lots of servants, lots of livestock and possessions. And, and so lots changed in these 20 years. And he's made his way back to the promised land. Last week, his biggest, the biggest fear he had in returning to the land was what to do with his brother Esau, who 20 years previously was out to kill him. And then last week, we saw in that beautiful scene of those two brothers embracing um, that God had caused Esau to forgive him for stealing the blessing. Um, so you think now all is going to be right, that Jacob is going to come back to the land, they're all going to live happily ever after. But then we get to chapter 34, and that is not the case. Um, what gets him in trouble is not going to be his brother Esau, and not even initially the enemies in the land, 
But what gets him in trouble is his own sin and the sin of his kids. So I'm going to start reading at the end of chapter 33, just verse 18, just to set the scene a little bit. Verse 18, after Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan, and he camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of field where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Hamor, um, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. And he set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. Now, I'm going to stop there and tell you that something is wrong with this picture. And we need to know that before you see, understand what comes next. Um, you might be thinking, well, I don't see anything wrong. Go back to chapter 31. God, Jacob is still back with his uncle Laban, and God tells him to leave and go back to the land of his ancestors. And that's exactly what he did. So what's wrong? Um, the problem isn't with what Jacob did. It's with what he didn't do. And to know that, you've got to go even further back, back to chapter 28. If you remember when Jacob left his parents in the first place. He spent that first night camping outside of not Shechem, but of another place called Bethel. And if you remember what happened on that night, he was camping outside of Bethel. He has a dream and he sees this portal, as it were, open between heaven and earth. And he sees angels going up and down this staircase or ladder. And, and he tells God, he makes a promise to God when he wakes up in the morning that he will return to that very spot that he had marked, the very spot that he slept on that first night. And he said these words. This is from chapter 28, starting verse 20. He said, if God be, will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothes to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I've set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give to you a tenth of all you give me. So Jacob had built this little monument there in that spot where he slept on the first night, and he said, I'm going to return to this spot, and I'm going to worship God here. But if you get now to the end of chapter 33, and where's Jacob gone? Not back to that spot he originally said he would. He's gone to a different place about 50 kilometers to the north, a place called Shechem. And he builds an altar there, and he pitches his tent there. And there's no word about him giving a tithe to God. So either Jacob's forgotten his promise, or he just doesn't care. We don't really know. We just know that what happens in this new spot that Jacob has landed in is not good for him and his family. He has led his family to the wrong place. Now, let's read in chapter 34. It says, Leah's daughter Dinah, whom Leah bore to Jacob, went out to see some of the young women of that area. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, who was the region's chieftain, saw her, he took her and raped her. He became infatuated with Jacob's daughter, Dinah. He loved the young girl and spoke tenderly to her. Get me this girl as a wife, he told his father. Now, there's not a lot to say. This is pretty self-explanatory what happens here. Uh, Dinah um, is called a young girl in verse 3, so she's probably in her mid to late teens. Um, and she goes out um, to kind of explore and, and potentially make friends with some of the, the other young women, the other girls her age. And as you go, you know, she's incredibly vulnerable. She's incredibly vulnerable because this kind of thing was unfortunately common. Um, and there's, there's no one in this entire story as it unfolds from the beginning to the end of chapter 34, absolutely no one 
who is going to stand up to genuinely protect Dinah and put her interests first, not even her own family. She's incredibly vulnerable. She's treated in this story almost by her brothers and father, almost like a prop, a, a negotiating tool on a stage. She's not treated like a person. And we, we see that even in the language with, with Shechem in verse 2. It says he took her and, and, and raped her. And the, the word in Hebrew for took is just, it's a very, um, it's a very dehumanizing word. Um, there's no, it, yeah, there's no way around that. Shechem uh, just says then he, he loves her um, and then demands to his father to get her. Because again, um, she's not treated as a, as a human being with her own needs and her own feelings at all. She's a victim of both a violent, selfish man and others in her life who fail to consider her needs and fail to protect her. All right, verse 5, Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but since his sons were with his livestock in the field, he remained silent until they returned. Meanwhile, Shechem's father, Hamor, came to speak with Jacob. Jacob's sons returned from the field, and when they heard about the incident, they were deeply grieved and very angry for Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter, and such a thing should not be done. Well, this is somewhat positive. It's good to hear that her brothers are outraged by what happened to their sister. Unfortunately, the way they respond is not really to get around their sister and care for her, uh, who's just been traumatized. Um, it's, it's all for them, it's all about getting revenge. It's all about avenging the family's honor. And in case you want to know what God thinks of all of this, there, we see these little clues along the way. Jacob is the only man in the story who has previously spoken with God and received God's blessing. And yet, look at him here. He's silent. He's incredibly passive. That's never a good thing in the narrative. We see that all the way back to, you see Adam, you remember Adam in the garden, all the way back in chapter three, we see him very passive and silent and that's where sin creeps in. So it's, it's, a, it's not a good sign. Um, the passion and rage in the story don't come from Jacob, they come from the sons and it's not going to be a godly passion and rage. All right, verse 8, Hamor said to Jacob's sons, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Intermarry with us, give your daughters to us, and take your daughters for yourselves. Live with us. The land is before you. Settle here, move about, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Grant me this favor, and I'll give you whatever you say. Demand of me a high compensation and gift. I'll give you whatever you ask me. Just give me the girl to be my wife. What you have here is what might be called an alternate gospel. An alternate gospel. It's very similar to if you know the story in the New Testament where Jesus is tempted by Satan. Jesus knows the promise of God. He knows his father. He knows that his father owns everything. That everything that he needs, his father can and will provide. And yet Satan comes to Jesus, the son of God, and says, I can give you everything. The only difference is I can give you what you want now. You don't have to wait for it. That's, a, that's an alternate gospel. And so often that's where we find ourselves. We, find our, we know the promises of God. We know the character of God. We've experienced those things. We just don't like to wait. 
We don't like to wait for the promises. And yet so often in the story of the patriarchs, we'll get to this. We see just waiting upon waiting upon waiting for years and years and years. And that's where sin comes into the picture of saying, look, you can have this now. Um, the offer here is um, by, again, this is a man who is, he has just committed violent assault and he goes directly to the victim, his victim's father and acts like it's no big deal. And, and, and says, just give me what I want. So, he's, you know, he sees himself as an equal in this negotiation. That's what sin does. It deludes us of right thinking. He's infatuated with Dinah, and then he wants to, to marry her. Um, see, sin always turns God's order and design upside down, right? Like normally in a, in a kind of wrote, like dating, how it works is that the, um, the interest and the infatuation comes first, then the relationship, then the marriage, then the consummation. In this situation, the consummation came first, and then the infatuation, and then the marriage. It's all mixed up, but yet that's what sin does so often. It takes God's order and design and turns everything upside down. Now, I'm going to read the rest of the chapter so we get the sense of the scope of the devastation here. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his, and his father Hamor deceitfully, you think, mm, I've heard that word deceitfully before. There's been a bit of deceit in, in Jacob's story. So they answer him deceitfully because he defiled their sister Dinah. We cannot do this thing, they said to them. Giving our sister to an uncircumcised man is a disgrace to us. We will agree with you only on this condition. If all your males are circumcised as we are, then we will give you our daughters. Take your daughters for ourselves, live with you, and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Their words seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man did not delay doing this because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most important in all his father's family. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city. These men are peaceful toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and move about in it, for indeed the region is large enough for them. Let's take their daughters as our wives and give our daughters to them. But the men will agree to live with us and be one people only on this condition. If all our men are circumcised as they are, won't their livestock, their possessions, and all their animals become ours? Only let's agree with them and they will live with us. All the men who had come to the city gates listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And all these men were circumcised. On the third day, when they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, went into the unsuspecting city, and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with their swords. They took Dinah from Shechem's house and went away. Jacob's sons came to the slaughter and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks, herds, donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. They captured all their possessions, dependents, and wives, and plundered everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble on me, making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We are few in number, but if they unite against me and attack me, and I and my household will be destroyed. But they answered, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So there's a few things to note here. Um, notice how Jacob's sons carry out this plot of revenge deceitfully. Where did they learn that kind of behavior? Probably from dad. They'd seen a lot of deceit in the way that he dealt with Esau, or they knew that he dealt with the way he dealt with his uncle Laban. Um, notice 
Jacob doesn't, up until the point where they go and, you know, carry out the slaughter, he doesn't do anything to stop them. His passive inability to kind of restrain his sons is going to be a big factor in what happens even to his favorite son, Joseph, later on. We see Jacob just kind of unable to, to rein in his son's anger. One of the key tasks of parenting and, and leadership is to be able to get people to imitate your, your good traits and then learn from your bad ones. But Jacob is either unable or unwilling to do this here. Um, you might be wondering, isn't what happened to Shechem and to his extended family just, given that he had raped an innocent young woman? Well, at the very least, we shouldn't be, feel sorry for them for what happened. He, he certainly deserved to be punished, and maybe his father for his complicity in what happened. But what happens when Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi, allow themselves to be fueled by this unbridled rage and lust for revenge? Well, the same thing that happens when Shechem is motivated by uncontrolled lust. Devastation. Devastation is the result. It's devastation upon devastation. The entire town gets wiped out of its men. And then what happens to the women of the city? Well, they don't fare much better. They're left as widows, probably then slaves, um, to Jacob's family. They potentially may become victims of violence themselves. Um, see, violence and theft that are justified in the name of justice or defending the honor of a family is not godly justice. That's human justice that's mixed with sin. It's, it's all about a power play between powerful groups of sinful men. Even Jacob at the end of the story, he's not, he still doesn't seem to be that concerned with the trauma that was inflicted on his daughter or even the wickedness of his own sons. He's most concerned that now he himself has a target on his back and that the, the, the people in the land are going to come and attack him. It's not a good look for the patriarch here. In short, there are no heroes in this story. There's just sinners and victims of sin. And that's true often in our experience too. Every person in this room, you and me, we're all both at the same time sinners and victims of sin. So what can we learn from this terrible episode in the history of Israel? I, I want to highlight three things this morning. I want us then to lift our eyes off of the mess, off of our mess, and onto the only one who can deal with a mess like this. So let's start with truth number one. Truth number one, all sin, no matter how insignificant or private, brings painful consequences. You can't escape that from reading a story like this. We see this play out. Jacob made the vow to go back to Bethel, and instead he goes 50 kilometers elsewhere to the north. You think, oh, 50, what's 50 kilometers? It's just a little bit of a, it's, it's not that big of a deal. And yet look at the result of what happens. Jacob either forgot or reneges on his vow to God, and, and nobody would have known maybe but him. But God knew. And he leads his family to the wrong place, and that is the setting of this disaster. See, friends, your relationship with God, my relationship with God, is not a private matter. You know, we talk about 
you know, things like having a quiet time. If you, you know, I don't know if you use that language or not, but having a time where you can you uh, commune with God by reading the Bible, praying, um, reflecting, meditating, and we we tend to think of that as like private religious activity. And yet you read the Bible, you come to stories like this, and there is, there, there is no division between public and private, between secular and sacred. It's all blended together in this messy whole. And so what you do on your knees at 6 a.m. or 5 p.m. or in your car or wherever it is, it matters for the rest of your day. It matters to the people that you love the most, the people you work with, the people you live near. It matters. It has consequences, both good and bad. You know, my kids are affected by the way that I pray or, or don't pray. It's why the Bible encourages us to be so interconnected in one another's lives. Because this whole idea of the, my, I, my relationship with God is just between me and him, and it's private, doesn't affect anybody. You will not find that idea from the Bible. Listen to Hebrews 3, 13. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. If your religion, if your relationship with God is only a private thing that is, involves no one else, you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's what the Bible tells us. And, and, and when Jacob has, is, is pri so prideful here in this story that the, this vow that he made to God is only his business and no one else's, he's deceived and hardened by sin. It doesn't mean we're all called to be busybodies and care more and more focused on other people's issues and sins than our own. But it does mean that we're called to bear one another's burdens live lives in close proximity to each other, to be open and honest and vulnerable with each other. Because your sin and your victories, my sin and my victory, affects us all. In our culture today, how a person thinks and behaves sexually is considered very private as well. It's between consenting adults. But, you know, even secular people are coming to the realization that not all consensual sex leads to flourishing. What we have in this story is clearly non-consensual, but in that day when women had almost no rights at all, it might have been considered in that culture relatively harmless what happened to Dinah. But what God's showing us here is that it's not harmless. Whatever God's design for sex and marriage is violated, it has painful consequences. You know, today, think about the analogy today. So many people think, for example, like a private porn habit. Well, that's just between me and, 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 and no one. It, it won't, it's harmless, but it's not harmless. It, whenever God's design for sex and marriage is violated in such a way, there will always be painful consequences. And so that's an opportunity that we have, if that's you, if that's your struggle, to connect and lean into Christian relationships that you might, in the power of God's Spirit, be free from those kinds of sins and addictions. We don't take God's word seriously because sometimes we think that our sin is, is, is harmless. It doesn't affect anyone. It, or, you know, I'm stronger. I can, I can quit whenever. And we don't go to battle against our sin. We don't invite other people into the struggle because we think we can handle it. And when we're, out, when we're there, it's already too late. As I said earlier, um, every one of us is both a, a sinner and a victim of sin, and oftentimes we are those things at the same time. 
And that doesn't mean that all sins are morally equal, that some sins aren't worse than others. Clearly in this story, rape and murder are worse than other sins because they do violence to people connected or made in God's image. But notice here how Dinah's brothers see themselves as victims to justify their own outrage. They're blind to the real victim in the story, and they end up creating even more victims, even more widows and orphans, all of them, by the end of the episode. So when you hold on to only hold on to your identity as a, as a victim and not see your identity as a sinner, you can justify creating lots of, of carnage in other people's lives and in relationships. You know, you think about how this plays out in marriage. You know, a lot of couples struggle, and I've been there, when you see yourself as the victim and the other person as the problem. Or, or you see that at work. You see yourself as the victim and your coworkers or your boss as the problem. But man, isn't it better then to see ourselves both as, yes, we have been hurt, yes, we've been sinned against, but we have also sinned against others. And then we can walk then in repentance and humility and we start to see some of those painful consequences unwind. That's the way of Christ. See, all sin is significant. None of it is private. And we ought to go to war against it for our own flourishing and for the flourishing of the people around us. Second truth from this passage. God's people, God's people, guys, must have a robust, a special concern for the flourishing of women. Now, you'll notice, you may have noticed in the story that God does not speak. There is no words from God in this story at all. Um, it's clear, though, by the way the story is told, that sexual assault against a woman is an outrage not only to the victims but to God. The verb used for sex in verse 2 has a violent overtone to it. And then in verse 5, Jacob hears that his daughter has been defiled. Um, this is not a, a, a word to just, it, it's not to emphasize that Dinah is now a sort of damaged. It's a word that implies that Shechem is guilty of a serious crime. Even if no one else thinks that, God thinks that. And when the brothers hear about the crime, it says they are grieved and outraged, which is the response their dad should have had. And the one God does have at all human sin, especially violence against vulnerable people. The response of Simeon and Levi, the two brothers, to what happened, however, is barbaric. And it's over the top. We've established that. But underneath their unrighteous zeal lies a grain of truth. God does not sit idly by when he watches a woman created in his image be treated in such a way. He sees and he acts decisively, either by bringing immediate consequences on earth or by reserving judgment for when the offender faces the judge of judges at death. And I'll come back to who that is in a moment. Let me say a word, though, about the kind of culture that we want to have in our church and in our society when it comes to protecting and promoting the flourishing of women. So much of this story would have unfolded differently if Dinah was treated simply as a person, if she was allowed to move about freely. Just by being out and about did not mean that she was available for any man to grab her. And yet, sadly, there are many settings, even in our world today, 
where this is still a ca the case, where a, a woman being alone at night or in a particular venue or someone one sees and judges her by the clothes that she's wearing and thinks that she's communicating something which she most certainly is not. And over and over again, this is how assault is justified or at least minimized. And I even hear this, sadly, sometimes among Christians, saying things that is essentially blaming a victim for being assaulted, saying, well, she shouldn't have been there, or she shouldn't have been wearing that, or, um, you know, whatever, like, she shouldn't have been drinking, rather than reserving the blame for who it really, or where it really belongs, and that is with the perpetrator. Now, that's not to throw all wisdom out the window, all of us ought to be more you know, mindful and careful of our surroundings, and yet far too often, women are blamed for their own suffering rather than the perpetrator. We wanted to have a different culture, not just in our society, but in our church, where women are loved and valued and have a voice in their own flourishing and their own protection. Dinah has no voice here, and later we'll see but Jesus, if you know the story of where he engages with a woman who was guilty of adultery, she wasn't simply a victim, he doesn't tell her, well, just go submit. Go, go and work it out with your father. No, she says to her, he says to her, go and sin no more. He gives her the dignity of agency. She's a person who has control over her own destiny. That's how Jesus spoke to women. We need, to, we need each other to promote the flourishing of women. And, and, and men, this is your concern too. We need to be people not who are quick to control, but quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, but not be passive. We act when action is necessary. The, the last truth I want to point out here is this. Everything that God promises on this earth and in this life is worth waiting for. So much of the horror that unfolds in this episode is due to human beings chasing after what they want now. I want this woman now. I want revenge now. And, and, and the devastation unfolds. It goes all the way back again to Genesis chapter 3. Eve saw the fruit. She decided it was good for food, delightful to look at, that it was desirable for attaining wisdom, and so she immediately takes it and eats it exactly what Shechem does with Dinah in this story. He saw, he liked, he took. Now contrast that to the experience of the patriarchs again with God's promises in Genesis. God says, I'm going to give you this land. Everything you see, it's going to be yours. But they don't go to war to take it for themselves. I'm going to give you offspring. And yet when Abraham tries and Sarah try to take matters into their own hands, the result is not good. Instead, they wait for 25 years for that offspring. Isaac and Rebekah wait 20 years for that offspring. Jacob waits for seven years to be married to his bride. I feel like often the guy that is not very good at waiting, you know? Like I can get in the drive-thru at a restaurant and I have to wait two minutes and it's just like, man, the world is against me. I'm a victim. Waiting's tough, but it's good. It's good for us. It's how God changes us and shapes us. The story of Genesis teaches a lot of things, but one of the most important things is that waiting on God to make us happy is good for us. 
Whenever we decide that we can make ourselves happier than God can make us, bad things happen. But waiting on God, welcoming his promises from a distance, even dying without receiving the fullness of those promises on earth, these things make us truly happy. And that is not what the world will tell you. The world, we, I mean, we're bombarded with advertising and all sorts of messages that say, get what you want now. You do you. Get what you need right now. Don't wait for sex. Don't wait to be noticed. Don't wait to get the thing that you really want. Go out and buy it now. Put it on credit card. Buy now. Pay later. That is the messages that we get every single day. The night before um, we left for our trip to the U.S., um, I was on hold with our travel agent for three hours and I never got through um, after finding out that our first flight out of Adelaide had been delayed. And boy, was I not happy. I mean, for me, in that moment, it just felt like we had done everything right. We paid so much money for these things. How dare they? That's how we feel when we have to wait. But the Bible teaches us again and again that waiting is the secret to happiness. That when we wait on God to give us what we think will fulfill us, that we end up happier. The temptation of the enemy, just like with Jesus, is to get it now, grab it now, settle down here, marry these women who don't know anything about God or true hope, buy stuff now, have a fat superannuation now, and you'll be happy. Satan tried to pull that on Jesus, and Jesus said, you know what? Everything that you can give me, I already have. It's already mine because I know the Father who owns it all. If you're a child of God, then so do you. Even justice. Some of you in this room know the pain of justice delayed or denied. And, and, I, and I, can't, I won't tell you that it's easy. It's, it's absolutely not. And yet we look to the cross as God's final word on the seriousness of sin and what will happen to those who do not repent of sin. Justice is coming. Everything sad will become untrue. Every tear will be wiped away. God is holding you now, and we have to believe that in faith and wait. Let me come back to Jesus just one more time before we wrap up. See, this place where Jacob went, the place where he wasn't supposed to go initially, this place called Shechem, he, he bought some land there. We, and, and, and this little patch of land, it shows up later in the Bible. At the end of Genesis, Jacob is going to bless all of his sons one at a time. And this particular plot of land that he had, he's going to seed uh, or give um, to his son, Joseph. And uh, this is a place that's good for grazing grazing flocks, and, and so evidently Jacob had found or dug a well there in this particular land near Shechem. And that property, that well, in fact, is still there today. We know this. I've actually been there. Um, this place called Shechem in Roman times uh, was the site of a Roman village called Sychar. And, and we see that Sychar shows up later on in the Bible, in fact, in the Gospel of John chapter 4. Um, in those days, in the Roman days, uh, there was a man who had been traveling through this area. 
And he sat down next to this very well that Jacob had dug, and he starts up a conversation with a woman, which was unusual in that day for a man to talk to a woman he didn't know. Um, but he doesn't treat her like a victim. He doesn't treat her like a project. He treats her like a person who has knowledge and, and questions and relationships and needs. And this man speaks to her about another well that he knows about, another well that could potentially will definitely satisfy all of her needs forever. The man, of course, was Jesus. And in that conversation with the woman from Samaria, he not only underlined the fact to her that none of her sin was private, he knew about it all, but he also in that moment dignifies her humanity. And he tells her that the only way to be truly human is to wait for the well and then drink from the well that he alone could give her. Friends, that water is not just for her. It's for you, it's for me, it's for your neighbors, it's for your children. Everyone who is far off. And we're so quick to buy the lies of the world that it's that well over there, it's that well over there will make us truly happy because we can have it now. And yet when we wait for the water that does not run dry, living water, we find true satisfaction. See, Jesus is here today with open arms offering this water to you and to me. So I only ask us to, as we close, to, to come to him and drink. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for all of your promises, that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Lord, we waited, your people waited for hundreds of years for Messiah Jesus to come, and when he came, they did not recognize him. And yet, by grace, by grace, we sit here and benefit from the truth that Jesus, though you were rejected by sinful men, though we would have rejected you if you were there. Lord, you were rejected by plan. You went to the cross by plan to, that you might deal with our sin and destroy it without destroying us. That you might give us the water that will lead to our flourishing. Lord, would you help us to have the faith and the humility uh, to forgo all other kinds of uh, chasing after water, chasing after our own happiness and salvation, that we might come to you alone, not just once, but every single day. Lord, would you give us that water to drink? Lord, as we come to the table, remind us again of what really satisfies. Lord, that we might flourish, men and women, as your people, um, for your glory and our joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, it is the time every week where we come and we gather around the table. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.